So on the show today, Alison Taylor, clinical professor at NYU Stern School of Business and executive director at Ethical Systems. And with us is, of course, also my co-host Rainer Indal, founder and managing partner of Equity. Today, we'll talk about ESG and how business can do the right thing. So Alison, a warm welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So let's dive into ESG then. ESG exists because investors and citizens and customers, suppliers and employees, they want business to be more responsible about its impacts. So it's simple in a way. And yet so much time is actually spent debating whether ESG drives alpha than on how ESG actually needs to evolve. And, and Alison, I know you often get questions like, what evidence is there that doing the right thing will actually make or save a company money? Or they might also ask, how can I persuade my organization that embracing integrity is actually a win-win. So I wanted to maybe start off here, Alison, and ask, does ESG really matter for financial performance? There are many, many thousands of studies exploring this question. The evidence is mixed, but I don't think that is particularly surprising. ESG metrics are very immature and there is no particular reason to think that ESG would correlate with uh, high financial performance because it's an enormous range of issues and it is up to a company to be strategic about the issues that it wants to focus on. There's also certainly a relationship between negative impacts a corporation might have on society and financial results, but I don't think we should kid ourselves that that plays out in a linear way. We can see, for example, that ExxonMobil, which was under a lot of pressure on climate change a few years ago, has just had its highest results ever. So that is to do with the energy market that is very, very complicated. So I'm not sure that we get ourselves as far along with trying to draw correlations between various sorts of ESG metrics and financial performance as people like to argue that we do. It's also important, I think, to remember that ESG is really investor attempts to quantify sustainability, but it is sustainability that the public and customers and young employees particularly care about. ESG is rather investors' attempts to make more money from these approaches. So ESG and sustainability are not the same thing. I agree with that, Alice. And quite lately, there has been a lot of discussion in the media around sort of this is anti-ESG debate. And I see some companies have even in their annual reports uh, now written about the whole uh, issue around ESG that they, from the shareholder base, are getting mixed signals on it. So it seems there's been some backlash to ESG. How do you see that debate this is something that is particularly an issue in the United States and relates to how polarized and dysfunctional the politics are over here. What I think it essentially is, is a bit of a mixing up of ESG with other concerns. So something that we have seen in the US over about the past decade is an increased willingness of CEOs of large companies to speak up on controversial social and political topics. This started under the Trump presidency, started with Trump pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement, and a lot of business leaders are resisting that and saying, we are still in and we're going to keep observing these issues. It then kind of spiraled out into issues like immigration, LGBTQ issues, systemic racism, 
uh, human rights in general, inequality, gun control, abortion. So there is a vastly increased appetite from corporate leaders in this country, or there has been, to engage with controversial social and political topics. And I think what the Republican Party is trying to do is to equate those efforts with ESG investing and argue that corporate America is becoming more socialist and is driving an ideological agenda. Now, ESG is interesting because it specifically lacks an ideological component. There are many, many ESG experts out there arguing that ESG has nothing to do with ethics. I don't think that's actually true. But ESG is a question of material risk and investors are interested in it because they're interested in the question of whether thinking about environmental and social risks would allow us to quantify and understand intangible value. So there is a a deliberate conflation of these two approaches by the Republican Party, I think, to try and get political traction. The other thing that's very interesting about the current moment is that both the left and the right in the US are making the arguments that whatever position they're supporting is just good capitalism and it is only the other side that has an ideological agenda. So the other thing that's very striking is how similar the arguments are on the right and the left. And that's maybe unsurprising as well, because a lot of the business case for ESG relies on how we understand or imagine things like climate change are going to pan out over the next 20 years. And because the future hasn't happened yet, that is obviously a debatable point. I agree. And I I find it fascinating sitting here in Europe looking at this debate, because to me, at least how we in summa embed ESG into the value creation approach in companies. This is just good business. If you want to create value and if you see the, the world and where the megatrends are going, to be agnostic to it and ignore it or try to sort of be anti-ESG, that's just plain stupid to me. So I don't understand why the republics, why they make it a debate around ESG, because like, it shouldn't depend on if you're on the left or the right. Yes, I partly agree, though I do think that ESG frameworks do not really consider the appropriate role of the government versus business. That would be in contrast to something like human rights frameworks. There is not really a conceptual limit on how far companies are supposed to go to address these challenges. There's a lot of debate, and I think legitimately, about things like scope-free emissions and how exactly we are expecting big companies to drive change among their supply chain and, and among smaller companies. And I think a lot of this also speaks to the role of regulation and how government and society and business ought to interact with each other. So I completely agree that there are dramatically shifting social norms and dramatically rising concern about the negative externalities of business. That doesn't necessarily translate into ESG frameworks. A lot of people would argue that these are ethical challenges. These are challenges basically about negative externalities of business on society and that we need regulation to try and manage these things because many companies will still make a lot of profit from dumping their waste in the river and hoping that the government will clean it up or not paying the living wage and and hoping the government will provide social security. So I also think we're not having a very grown up conversation about what is actually going on here. And we're rather making rather simplistic win-win arguments that a company can always make more money from doing the right thing. And that is very clearly not the case. Is ESG a moral issue? Well, I believe it is. I believe the whole field is a result of rising public concern about the negative impacts of business on society. Sustainability was coined really in the late 1980s. The reason that we have these concerns was a lot of environmental disasters, a lot of evidence of exploitation of cheap workers in Asia, and then obviously rising evidence of the impacts of things like climate change, the negative 
human rights and mental health impacts of social media and that kind of thing. And so for all the people arguing that ESG has no ethical component, the range of of things companies can do are all quote unquote good things. The debate is how to select among those quote unquote good things. The ESG field argues that you select on the basis of quantifiable financial performance. So you don't just do the right thing. You only do the right thing if you can prove it's going to make more money. The sustainability field rather suggests that you should focus on the impact of business because that is the root cause concern. And people that argue against that say that it is ridiculous for a business to do something just for good reasons if it isn't profitable. So at the end of the day, the debate comes down to ethical issues and impact issues and how we as a society are expecting business to behave. So the the question is what exactly we do about these issues, but to say they have no ethical component, I think is a little naive and a little simplistic. I completely agree with you. Alison, how would you describe the state of ESG? I mean, where have we been and where do we need to go now? Well, we have had ESG for almost 20 years. There has been an enormous growth and focus on this topic, particularly in the last decade. Europe is very, very much more advanced. There is much more consensus about the role of regulation. There is a little bit more of a balance in terms of what's expected of business uh, versus government. The US has caught up or is trying to catch up a little bit more recently. We've, I believe, covered the political backlash here already. We're now in a question about regulation and disclosure. We're in a conversation about young employees and what they're really expecting from business. I think we're in a conversation about the role of regulation. I'm hoping that we are starting to be able to understand and measure and think thoughtfully about impact. We now have human rights frameworks that enable companies to think about and approach those topics. We have not got very far, I think, on questions of internal governance. I think it's very, very revealing that sustainability tends to be treated and managed in a completely siloed department compared to ethics and compliance or HR or government relations. So I tend to argue we need a more holistic and strategic approach to integrity that enables companies to address some of these concerns about hypocrisy, something that happens very frequently, at least in the US, is that you hear companies taking very aggressive public positions, for example, on fighting climate change. Um, And at the very same time, their government relations teams are lobbying to undermine regulation that might place some guardrails on them about climate change. So there's a lot of these mixed messages going on. And young employees, I think, particularly focused on this. They're speaking up. They're using strategic leaking. They're saying they don't want to work for companies that aren't taking a genuine position. So I also think we're at the beginning of a different conversation about things like responsible tax and lobbying and campaign finance. And these kind of, again, these wider questions that really get to the nub of the issue. I think, uh, at least in the US, a lot of companies have thought they can have it both ways. They can use ESG approaches for better PR, to try and attract employees, to try and attract customers. And they maybe don't need to uh, deal with these more underlying governance issues. And that tends to end up with a lot of concern over hypocrisy and greenwashing and that kind of thing. You mentioned a bit around the G in ESG. And I think there is a lot of discussion. In Europe, I find the discussion is mostly about the E. In the US, it's more on the S. And very rarely do I hear a lot of debate and discussions around the G. And uh, we are an active owner. So in Summa, we own uh, the companies. We are usually the controlling shareholder. So our influence on uh, ESG matters 
is through the governance, given that we actually control these companies. And I think we have a good way of, of leveraging that coverage and how we incorporate ESG into the strategic and operational agenda in, in companies. But when you are looking at the G, what, what do you see boards and, and shareholders and owners do and, and not do in relation to how they use their governance to drive the ENS agenda? I don't think anyone actually agrees on what the G of ESG is. Many people treat it as a question of corporate governance. This is, you know, this is about measuring the quality of mainstream corporate governance, how shareholders are engaging with companies, how well run the company is. The media, when they're talking about the G of ESG, almost exclusively focuses on questions of board diversity and executive pay. So it's very often thought of in those very, very narrow terms. Other people, including a a group I work with at the World Economic Forum would frame the G of ESG differently and would uh, describe it as being about corporations' negative externalities in the same way that the E and the S is, but relating to governance issues. So things like corruption and human rights and issues around governance that are out there in the external environment. There's then a third way we might think about the G of ESG, and let's bear in mind that the root of these whole issues is the idea that you should manage for all stakeholders, not just shareholders. So then that speaks to a debate about how you would have stakeholders more involved in core corporate governance, which is not the same thing as relying on shareholders to put pressure on companies over E and S issues. So part of the problem is we're having a very mixed up conversation because we're not really clear what we're talking about. And this is made even more complicated because of the rise of activism. So we've seen the rise of employee activism and consumer activism. And let's not forget shareholder activism over these issues. So again, there's a genuine debate. Can we expect universal owners and these type of very broad asset managers who have interest in the whole economy to drive companies um, towards better ENS performance without having to think about the way these companies are run and made decisions? Or rather, do we need to think about the kind of decision making who's involved and really challenge this notion of shareholder primacy? And as with much of this debate, we are again having a very, very confused conversation because we have not got consensus on what the G of ESG actually is. So what should we talk about when we talk about G? We need to debate how governance works and how companies think about stakeholder interests and how they make decisions. Even a notion like uh, stakeholder capitalism still envisages the company as a fake corporate person and other stakeholders as being a threat to the value creation of that corporate person. There's an amazing paper out of the University of Chicago talking about the 50 years of Milton Friedman, and it quotes a Columbia law professor describing stakeholders as natural adversaries to corporate value. So arguably, right, we have entirely the wrong metaphors. If we think of a corporation as a fake person who needs to be protected from stakeholders, including employees, arguably, we will never be able to implement these ideas. And we need to start thinking of corporations as social systems that interact with other political, economic, social and environmental systems, and and that we need to think about risk and return and the role of business in a completely different way that even stakeholder capitalism does not fully allow us to do. And if you were advising Summa, what would be sort of the important best practices and what would you sort of advise us to do on our governance? I would say a few things. I would say ESG metrics are not the same thing as a credible sustainability strategy. I would argue that you should be thoughtful about 
trying to help companies drive strategic change as opposed to ticking the box on 30 or 40 ESG metrics, that in turn, a company cannot be genuinely ambitious on 30 or 40 ESG issues, and that we will be much better off if we can have corporations focus on one to three issues that they might be able to actually achieve strategic transformation, not to say that they shouldn't meet peer expectations and reporting frameworks on everything else. But I think we are failing in general to differentiate between strategic risks, innovation opportunities, and ethical imperatives. And therefore, we end up with poorly designed incentives, poorly designed goals, and a lot of companies out there saying that they're doing wonderful things on issues like net zero, and the world just keeps getting hotter. So I think we need to have a more realistic conversation about corporate capacity to tackle these issues. I think we need to have a more realistic conversation about how we think really corporations will behave if what we tell them is that investors need a lot of non-financial data in order to be able to score those companies and deploy capital. I don't think it's super surprising that the result is companies trying to spin that data in a way that makes them look as good as possible. So I also think we need to have a much more realistic conversation about transparency and metrics and incentives. Hallelujah. I mean, that's uh, music to my ears, uh, Alison. This is exactly what Summa has been doing. So for each of our companies, we create the theory of change for that industry or sector. So where do we need to get to? And then we focus the company's strategy around the outcomes and link to the core of the business. So we have maximum three KPIs, which measure the impact or the output on the externalities. And they need to be linked to the core of the business, so more than 50% of the revenues of the business. And that's fully tied in with the, so the operating metrics are the impact metrics. And they are linked to the results of the company as well, because uh, if the company isn't growing, it's not increasing its impact either and vice versa, because all of our companies have to put positive outcomes and impact in the core of their strategy. So it means there's an alignment between financial growth and the growth in, in positive externalities. So I agree with you know focusing on what's material, keeping it simple, keeping it to the core of the business, and then as owners, drive that in the strategic and operational agenda of the companies. Yeah, and I think this is, you know, you're highlighting another very important common misunderstanding, right? You hear a lot of debate that ESG is about sorting good companies from bad companies. And as you're arguing, the only important thing really is the direction of change. We would like dirty companies to become cleaner companies. We would like chemical companies to be more sustainable and responsible. This is not about sorting good from bad. It's about trying to drive positive change over time. Absolutely. But Alison, the thought leadership realm for ESG and sustainable finance is, is very noisy and full. And um, I'm thinking, are there any specific voices whose leadership you think should be elevated right now? There are a lot of people that I read and listen to. I think Bloomberg has a really excellent skeptical coverage on this topic. I would advise anybody to follow Robert Eccles. He makes uh, many of these material risk arguments, but he's doing wonderful outreach with Republicans and trying to depoliticize this topic. 
you know, there are a ton of other voices out there taking different perspectives. Somebody like Duncan Austin, very, very interesting, skeptical voice on how the market will never solve sustainability challenges. So I think it's important to get a range of perspectives from informed people and also to identify the true experts. One of the things about the big growth of this area is there are a lot of opportunists now trying to reframe themselves as ESG experts and and make money in this area. To a certain extent, that is fair enough. But I would argue there is no such thing as an ESG expert. Nobody has all the breadth and depth that they need. And so, you know, I think it is a question of reading widely and listening to the debate. I also very much like the work of Alex Edmonds at London Business School and Ken Parker at Tufts. So where do you think we are in 10 years from now? Are we still having the same debate? Is there sort of a Milton Friedman camp and one that has sort of moved on to see that this is something that the businesses should do and, and drive this agenda? Or where do you think we are in 10 years? It's very hard to say. I certainly don't agree with anybody that says this is just a, a trend and a fad and it's going to go away because the, you know, I think those people are not paying attention to the fact that there's something very real going on in the world and the public is noticing and us as a society are not going to stop noticing these issues. All these things are getting worse and the negative impacts are going to kind of continue to mount. Whether we have ESG in five years, I don't know. I mean, I think we might see more differentiated and sophisticated strategies. There are many examples of how the E, the S and the G might trade off against each other. I think we will see a lot more focus and sophistication around impact. And as I've already mentioned, I think we're just at the beginning of a conversation about corporate political responsibility and issues like responsible tax and doing something meaningful about anti-corruption. So I'm absolutely certain uh, that we will continue to see all these conversations advance. And I base that on what I see in the classroom every day. I teach MBAs and I teach undergrads, and it is very, very clear that they think very differently about their careers and about the role of business. And these are business school students. They are not, you know, a bunch of hippies trying to drive this agenda. These are people that are very, very pragmatic and very focused on business planning. And it's very clear to me that something uh, very profound has happened in terms of shifting norms in society, regardless of the debate out there and the people currently in charge trying to dismiss a lot of what's going on. No, I agree. And it's uh, a little bit like the debate we had on the internet and dot com back 20 years ago uh, or whenever. This is real and it's happening. And if you ignore it and agnostic to it and sort of anti-ESG, I get amazed because the world is shifting. And today, if you want to hire the best people, especially younger people, if you want to attract capital to your company, if you want your company to be future-proof and grow, you can't ignore these issues. So I'm, I'm truly fascinated by this whole anti-ESG discussion and why, why there is a debate on it. Because you know I can understand that debate of, uh, a few years ago, but the mainstream and the mainstream consumers and mainstream employees, you need to care about these things now. If not, you're going to lose out in the world going forward. I completely agree, but there is still a legitimate debate about what companies should focus on and how far they should go to solve the problems and and where the limits of that might be. And I don't believe ESG or for that matter, sustainability frameworks actually set any conceptual limit. And that makes things very challenging from a corporate strategy perspective. So we've just done a large piece, which we'll come out with soon, on how Europe can get to a circular economy by 2040. And if you look at sort of how big that problem is now, if you look at waste, end-of-life material, and our linear economy, it's over 20% over CO2 emissions. And we can reduce that by 50-60% by 2040 if we make a more circular value chain. 
the investment opportunities there, and if you see the revenue you can create through that, the jobs you can create around that, and the value creation you get from that is enormous. And we'll, we'll come out with some numbers on that. So there's a huge opportunity in doing this. That means that we will have to transition a lot of current value chains and companies. So maybe, and I don't know numbers on them, but just put out, you know, 10% is green already. 10% is brown and, and will have to die at some point because it isn't possible to transition. But uh, it's 80% in between, which actually need a strategy to transition. If not, they will be disrupted by innovation and, and what's happening. And that's where I'm afraid if people are just agnostic and say, you know, or, or, or greenwash things and highlight what they're doing, but not really doing something on the strategy and innovation side they will lose out. And most businesses are in that. I mean, there is a bright future for most companies if they now put this into their long-term strategic agenda and, and drive this forward. And there's not a role for them in the future if they ignore it now and miss that opportunity. I agree. Alison, you, you are writing a book now for HBRS Press on how business can do the right thing in a turbulent world. What exactly are you exploring there? And what are the answers to this question, if you can share? The premise of the book is that we have lost sight of what it means to be a good business. We talk a lot about being good and bad businesses. We used to have the notion that a good business is a business that doesn't break the law. Per Milton Friedman, we clearly not in that world anymore. When my students talk about whether a business is good or bad, they're more likely to be talking about something not regulated um, or not regulated very strongly yet, like climate change and human rights. So we've lost, I think, consensus on what it means to be a good business. And then there are many, many different conversations going on. I also argue that what we name as business ethics has almost nothing to do with ethics as we would understand it in academic terms and has everything to do with trying to protect the corporate principle, the corporate person from reputational or regulatory risk. And that worked quite well in the 20th century, but with the rise of social media, with the rise of awareness of negative externalities, with the rise of employee activism, with huge value shifts going on in society, I don't think these defense mechanisms are working anymore. So the question is, what should we do instead? And the book is structured as a series of essays discussing a range of contentious topics and giving practical advice. So I have, for example, chapters on stakeholder engagement, environmental and social priorities, corruption, human rights, transparency, political risk, leadership, culture, speaking up purpose, et cetera, et cetera. And so I try to explore each of these topics in a, a punchy and accessible way, in a way that people that are not deeply embroiled in the history of these debates uh, will be able to understand. And I try to provide practical advice on if you are a business leader trying to be a good business today, where should you focus and what does that really take? That is great. And that's an important discussion to have. And uh, I think, you know, many see capitalism as being amoral and corporations being amoral. But it's, it's really uh, highly moral and ethical, I think. So and in summa, I mean, we have a clear purpose. We invest to solve global challenges. We have clear values and uh, we act in a certain way that is deeply sort of moral and ethical. So, so I think this debate is very important and get the ethics and moral back into the discussions we're having. 
Yes, but it's important to remember that morals and values vary. We're not in a world of consensus over questions about what is and isn't the right thing to do. And I think we see that with how the anti-ESG debate is playing out. Everybody thinks that their approach to ethics is the quote unquote right one, but ideologies, religions, upbringing, culture, there are varying perspectives on this. So I think it is genuinely quite hard to know what it is for a business to be ethical. I would argue this should be grounded in impact on society and core human rights principles. But one of the reasons I've written this book is that this is a very debatable point. Yeah, I mean, and that's why we have the law to make sure that, you know, whatever is outside the boundaries of what the society is willing to accept is unethical and then uh, hence illegal. But I do Well, think... yes, but the law does not provide solutions here in a globalized world. The, you know, the no. whole point of ESG is that we can't rely on the law to set these guardrails. So I don't think ESG would, would exist if regulation was working well. They're correct. But the shift I've seen, uh, and I see it every day now, is that employees select now out of the work and moral fabric the company has. And you see that with consumers. And you saw the marketplace where you thought that it didn't matter exactly what kind of values or ethics or moral you have. Now I think that is changing. Yeah, that's certainly true. That's not to do with the law. That's very specifically not to do with the law. That's saying yeah. that, that companies should care about this, not because of the law, but because they want to attract customers and employees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just uh, thinking about in the framework of me as a private person also. So, uh, you know, it's clear I can be an ethical person. Or I can have my morals and people will know, knowing me, what kind of person I am. But if I do, do something illegal, then I'm outside the moral uh, acceptance in, uh, in the marketplace. But people still choose who wants to be friends with me based on uh, what kind of morals and, and person they see I am. And I think it's the same now in the marketplace and with companies. So employees has that choice. Consumers have that choice. Investors have that choice. But I think it's becoming more and more important what kind of company you are. What is your purpose? What are your ethics? What do you care about? What kind of externalities do you create? I absolutely agree. I think that is fundamentally what we're talking about. Alison, what examples of leaders do you have who are focused and honest and also clear about what they strive for? I mean, you know, I think there are some uh, very impressive corporate leaders out there. I get very concerned about certain people that are very prominent in the sustainability movement making claims for what this stuff can and can't do that I think are exaggerated. Again, I would really recommend a focus strategy that does not spin and exaggerate where a company can actually contribute. I would prefer a company to give its employees time off to vote and the freedom to express their own voices rather than imposing values on them and so on. And so for me, I find this a, a difficult question to answer because I don't think we necessarily need more inspirational leaders at the top. I think what we need is more consultation with the collective. I think we need to listen to the wisdom of the collective. I think we need fewer big egos uh, showing up at Davos claiming to save the world and more listening to the rank and file of employees about what's important, more consultation on things like materiality and strategy, and a more realistic and sober view about what companies can and can't do that in in encompasses political responsibility. So now it's my time to say hallelujah. I love what you said. <laughs> it really resonates very well with what I've experienced and seen as well. But I was thinking about your role where you are there, both as a professor and also advisor to companies. You literally like translating, bringing the best ideas from academia to business. So do you want to share a couple of such ideas where you are bridging over? Yeah, 
I mean, I think there's a lot of evidence, for example, that you will not get the best engagement and performance out of your workforce if you are subjecting them to constant surveillance. There has been a lot of rollout of surveillance tools by organizations as a result of the pandemic and remote work that track keystrokes or even how you're composing your emails and try to predict who might commit fraud and that therefore kind of score and rate employees on uh, how much time they're spending at their desks and that kind of thing. That is a terrible approach to building an ethical and effective culture. And there is a lot of robust behavioral science research showing that. There's also a very interesting behavioral science research showing that the more senior you are in an organization, the less likely you are to challenge your colleagues or raise concerns about ethical issues. So I think that speaks to what I just said about the need to stop prioritizing and celebrating big egos and rather the need to put in place more robust governance to check and balance uh, what's going on at the top. So many, many examples like this. But it's very interesting that there are all these wonderful ideas from academic research that corporations still continue to ignore. You're working a lot with young people. What kind of new style of leadership do you think they desire? We used to have the idea um, in my generation that when you start a job, you know, you, you sit at your desk, you get told what to do, and eventually you get promoted, and then you get to tell other people what to do. That is very clearly not how people under 30 see leadership. They want to be mentored. They want to be inspired. They want to be developed. They are expecting their managers to care about things like their mental health, to care about their careers. They're expecting very, very, very different things than I expected from leaders when I was young. And I think this sometimes can be a little bit unrealistic, but I think is mostly uh, incredibly positive. And I hope over the long term will lead to better and healthier organizational cultures. Are there any particular advice that you'd like to give to young people listening who are about to make choices to design their life work? I think it is important to think about what you enjoy and where you can have the most impact. I think it is important not to treat your career as a, an outlet for all your ambitions and frustrations. I think it's also important to engage with the political process, to engage with wider society, to maybe not expect your job to provide all the emotional and spiritual and intellectual fulfillment that you desire. And I think it is important to try many different things and figure out what you enjoy and how you can contribute and not feel pressured to go a certain path and to follow that all the way through. I think there's a lot of change going on in society, a lot of opportunity. I certainly advise undergraduate students to have a decade of experimentation and to think about how they would like to craft their careers over the long term. I also think very often for young people, it might be useful to get grounded in a core business discipline, whether that's marketing or finance or risk, before moving more into the sustainability and ESG world. Great advice. And from a bigger perspective, what does the world need most right now? We need different sorts of leaders. I think we need generational shifts to take place. And I think we need to maybe uh, listen to young people and have the debates that we've been having during the course of this podcast. And Rainier, what do you want the main takeaway to be for the people listening to this episode? That's a good question, because I've been thinking about what is my main takeaway from this discussion, because I think it's been a very good one. And one debate that we haven't had that often is the issue around uh, morality and business. So one of the takeaways for me is, yes, business needs to make money, but how you make the money is important. And that is for us as private persons as well. I mean, how do you make your money? 
So I think if a business that creates negative impact means that someone loses. So the only way you're making money and winning is because you are depriving someone else. That could be the planet or it could be employees or it could be society at large. And I think that's fundamentally changing because we are seeing that externalities are becoming so big. So suddenly now moral becomes important for a business because people care. Consumers care, employees care, and everyone starts caring. How do you make your money? So that is my takeaway. And we need to put morals back into it. And it's not about how much money a company makes. It's about how you make your money and who wins and who loses in that game. The way I would put it is a company needs to make money to survive. You know, this is not a debatable point. A company needs to grow and make profit to survive. We as human beings need a beating heart to survive. But a human being does not exist solely to be a vehicle for its beating heart. So you may need to make profit to survive, but you do not exist solely to do that. You need another reason to exist. That is the way I would put it. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Alison. Thank you, Rainer, for a great and valuable conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk to you both. Thank you very much. This is Summa and Friends, the show that inspires and guides you on how we together can create a wiser future. Listen to unique leaders and experts exploring the challenges we are facing and revealing their stories about the solutions and how to get there. Episodes are released bi-weekly on your favorite podcast platform. And the week after, we release an in-depth blog article to help you capture the core ideas from the dialogues and how you can help move things forward. Summa and Friends is a podcast for people with the courage to care for a wiser future. To find out more, you will find links and show notes on summaequity.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening to the show. We hope it has inspired you to reflect on what you can do to contribute. And to make it easy for you to find and listen to this show again, subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And please share this episode with one person you know would benefit from hearing it. I'm Vesna Luca, and you've been listening to Summa and Friends. And until next time, live with purpose and be the change you want to see. Mm-hmm.